What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent here. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. I usually say they're right down the hall for me here at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas, but I'm not in the Commons in Austin, Texas. I'm in New Jersey. But Unchained Capital's still there. And they're still producing products that allow you to eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. Uh, we've seen a lot of people fall prey to single points of failure in their custody model, particularly uh, with centralized exchanges and lending platforms where individuals will give them their Bitcoin and then they'll lend it out, rehypothecate on the back end to traders, hedge funds like Three Hours Capital will completely just set it on fire. Uh, and you wake up one day and you don't have Bitcoin, you don't have access to it. Unchain helps you there. Uh, this is personified uh, or exemplified is the correct term I'm looking for. Exemplified in their vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig. You hold two keys, Unchain holds one. You always have access to your Bitcoin as long as you have those two keys. If you're ever in a pinch, you only have access to one. Unchain is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. Uh, they have a white glove concierge team. It's going to answer all your questions, walk you through how the product works, how multi-sig works. They're going to get you hardware wallets. Go to unchain.com slash concierge to get set up with their vault product. Uh, if you're a business, high net worth individual, I highly recommend you use this service. I use it myself personally for the business. Um, uh, it's, it's an incredible product, incredible team. Building on Bitcoin the correct way. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Breaking news. It's not going to be breaking when you listen to this episode because we're posting this a few days after we recorded it, but looks like Brains is uh, going to stop supporting Zcash mining on their pool. It's very interesting. They're, they're going full Bitcoin only. They've been supporting Zcash since it launched, but decided, hey, it's not worth it anymore. We're going to go Bitcoin only. Not only are we going to do that, we're going to continue building uh, tools and firmware for Bitcoin miners so that they can run their operations more efficiently and stack more sats at the end of the day. Did you know that Brains produces idiot-proof firmware? This is their Brains OS Plus firmware, and it idiot-proofs your mining operation because you have, if you have ASICs that are compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you download it, you're going to stack more sats. If you don't download it, you're going to stack less sats, and only idiots decide to stack less sats. So idiot-proof your mining operation and download Brains OS Plus firmware to Brains, that's B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Check out the firmware, check out Brains Insights, check out Brains Pool, switching from Slush Pool to Brains Pool at the end of this month. Uh, go check it all out, brains.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a lending platform. It's no KYC, no AML. It's peer-to-peer. -peer. It leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties and allows you to have the confidence and the assurity that your sats aren't being rehypothecated when you enter into a loan. What you do is you put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-seat quorum. You hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds another key, and then hodl hodl holds the third key. Uh, since you have one key, you have visibility into that two or three multi-seat escrow account, and you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. Uh, you put Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stable coins in return. As long as you're paying back that loan plus interest, you are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Last but not least, Upstream Data. Incredible company. I'm a happy customer. Uh, I, I have one of their 50 kilowatt hash shuts. It's running up in 
Tennessee off a of natural gas stranded well. It's been running flawlessly since I plugged it in. Uh, no downtime outside of oil changes to the generator. Uh, and it is exemplary of the quality product that Upstream is putting out there. And they have products for everybody in the mining spectrum, whether you're an at-home miner who's using your uh, electricity that's coming through your house to mine Bitcoin. They have the black box for you. It allows you to put a couple miners in uh, and it controls sound and heat. Uh, the sound, if you've mined before, can be a bit loud and can put a strain on relationships, marriages. Um, so Upstream has come in, swooped in to save your marriage, save your relationship with the black box. You put the miners in, you close the lid, and the sound gets reduced significantly. On top of that, it controls uh, the heat. It's got good airflow in there, so you're not going to burn out your miners. Uh, if you want to get a black box, if you want to mine at home, use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S. You're going to get 5% off your black box. Uh, if you want to get miners, Upstream is there to help you as well. They can help you acquire miners to put in that black box. And then again, with their hash shots, they have a slew of different sizes. I use a 50 kilowatt hash shot. I believe they just released a 180 kilowatt hash shot, and they also have a 900 kilowatt hash shot. So whether you're uh, an individual like myself mining off a small stranded natural gas well or a large oil and gas producer that's <coughs> using a lot of gas upstream to mine Bitcoin, Upstream Data is here for you. They'll get you the huts, they'll get you the generators, they'll get you the miners. Go to upstreamdata.ca. If you're in the oil industry, sitting on some fat profits, ASIC prices are pretty low. Could be a good time to diversify into mining. Enjoy this, Red Freaks. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Food insecurity and energy insecurity ever worked out well for anyone if you're in government. And the simple fact is, come this winter, given what we anticipate will happen, and they're starting to get frightened, Western governments. There'll be massive civil disobedience. And what are they going to do? Try and put down millions of people protesting and rioting? They can't because the optics will be horrendous. So this is just the, really, in essence, the, the fallout of the absolute stupidity and, they, and this is tied in with the Ukraine war, which we can discuss, just how they never engage their brains as the consequences of their actions. And, and now they are really, really frightened that come this winter, they're going to have massive civil disobedience. And, and what are they going to do? Do nothing? Just let people riot? Or do something about it? And they don't have any, really, any plans as to what they're going to do other than because you can't print energy or print food. That's the point. Yeah, and that's been a big topic on this show in recent months is energy is life. Uh, energy is the basis for everything that we have in our modern society and really screwing up our energy systems globally is creating an incredible amount of chaos. We had the Arab Spring in 2011, 2012, when commodity prices rose in the Middle East and 
it seems like now we're transitioning into a global spring as energy resources become more scarce. Yeah, and they, well, the pro, well, it's predominantly a problem for the West because Russia can produce a lot more energy. The Iranians can produce a lot more energy. The the OPEC Plus can, but they're not prepared to do it. And and the issue is the West is going to suffer with having to pay exorbitant prices for energy. But if you're in the friendly global South. Will sell you energy at enormous discounts. I mean, Iran can produce a barrel of oil for fifteen dollars. This is why there's enormous Chinese and Russian investment in Iran because they can scale up LNG production, oil production, and they can create a two-tier world where the West is struggling with a lack of energy and having to pay ridiculously high prices. The global South go, well, we're fine. We've got cheap access to cheap energy. And this is something the West just isn't computing in any way, shape, or form. And it's an enormous problem that's very obvious to us. But it's it's not yet really factored into the thinking of of those in Western governments and, and those on the periphery of governments in terms of policy making. They they still think that somehow the Green Revolutions that's they don't even understand what it takes to, to manufacture a wind turbine. I mean, there's plastics. Where do they think plastics comes from? Oil production. They just act. And the problem is people genuinely think it's deliberate, but they are so stupid. And it's far more <laughs> worrying how stupid they are. than yeah, I mean, we're not disputing that things happen. There's people trying to take advantage of situations. But the idea there's this global nefarious plan to destroy Western civilization. Well, as I said, when did, when's the how's that going to work out for them? Do we think 330 million Americans are going to sit there going, I don't have a problem, I'm hungry and I'm cold? It's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, in America, well, particularly in the US, given the amount of firearms people have, I think people are going to react extremely badly. And what are these people going to do in government? Well, they're just going to stand there and go, I mean, do they really think the police force or the army is going to stand up? I mean, the U.S. Army is going to stand up against hundreds of millions of Americans and go, actually, we'll start shooting you. No, of course not. And they know this. So this is why I always come back to the point, there's nothing deliberate about this. This is just decades of stupidity. I mean, Russia is ideological hatred on steroids, and now they're paying, well, we're paying a huge price. Because they simply cannot comprehend. Well, how did Russia manage to circumvent the sanctions problem? Well, they've been doing it since 2014. You know, there's all these things they just don't think. And the problem is, anyone like me who talks about this, they go, "Well, you're a you're a you know a Kremlin apologist." Or something. No, I'm just telling you this is reality. It's not about agreeing with it. This is just a statement of fact. This is how the world operates, and the West just will not grasp reality. And the problem is, when does it grasp reality? And the longer this goes on, the bigger the risks are for all of us. And, but yeah, I, it, there's nothing remotely surprising about this. It's just simply the fact that they, their hatred of Russia is so great. that you know, It's a bit like, well, if this didn't work, we'll just do more of the same because eventually it will work. And the more they do, the, the worse it gets for us in the West. 
And Russia sat there going, we don't have a problem with this. If you don't want our gas, fine. We've already sold half of Nord Stream 2 gas supplies to Asia and we'll sell the rest and you can just do without. We don't care. And also yeah. Russia's economy is only 15% of its GDP depends on oil and gas. And Westerners don't grasp this. And these politicians and and those on the you know, think tanks and all these people who advise governments or people trying to force government policy don't have any clue of reality. I think Lavrov called the Westerners schizophrenic, and he's right. The West is schizophrenic because it has a zero grasp of reality. They live in this delusional fantasy world of this is how the world is, and the world isn't like that, and the world is increasingly changing, and they need to accept that that's the way it is, and you can either join it or you can freeze to death, starve to death. That's your choice. But, well, you know, the rest of the world wants to move on. Yeah. What do you think that is the driving force behind this stupidity, this complete disconnection from reality? Well, I guess we can talk about that when we, you know, as we record things, because it's an extremely valid point. But I've had enough experience myself in the financial sector and all those things, and we can we can talk about that. Where the disconnect from reality has been has been my experience, and I can talk about some of my interaction with governments and government advisors through through the pandemic, which highlights their tunnel vision as well. But we'll, I think it's good to talk about that in, as part of our discussion because it it will help to give people, I think, a better understanding that, yeah, we, we know there's evil in the Western world with evil intent, and I don't want to dispute in that, but there isn't some global nefarious plan to, you know, buy. I mean, it's like the pandemic, you know. Look how the... Oh, once we have a lockdown, we're in lockdown forever. Well, here we are today. That's not true. So the people making these stories have to keep backtracking and changing the story. And then it became eventually, oh, COVID was a dress rehearsal for the next pandemic. Oh, it's going to be monkeypox. No, it isn't. And here we are. No, it isn't. You know, it's this. But some of these people are as ideologically driven as, as Western governments and all the people, the entourage surrounding them believe things they believe in this so passionately and they will not entertain the idea that that's not reality either. and it's not reality it's just it's just this idea well if there's people not in charge and it's total chaos they, they a lot of people can't cope with that that's worse than the idea that there's this nefarious group of people controlling the, the world they actually get some sort of some source of comfort from that even though it's horrendous but the idea there's no one in control in the West, in reality, terrifies me. And that's understandable, but that's where we're at. There isn't. I mean, because if they were intelligent, they would never have sanctioned Russia the way they, they have done because they're dis- we're destroying ourselves. I mean, it's absolute stupidity. Yes. Uh, well, I should let you know that my producer, I think he was liking the beginning of the conversation, hit record. We're not streaming oh, okay. live. But uh, oh, the audio fine. is good. I'm not sure um, where we kicked in, but anyway, yeah, that's fine. I think we kicked in like a minute into the conversation, so we've picked up a lot of good okay. content already. But uh, going into that disconnection from reality, I mean, here in the United States too, and I, I'll, I'll be honest, I go back and forth between it's a globalist ploy and it's just pure incompetence and what really leads me to believe that 
it's stupidity just looking at the president of the United States, particularly around energy policy. I mean, we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act here in the United States, which is essentially uh, a way to reduce inflation by printing a bunch of money. And not only that, it's essentially a backdoored Green New Deal where they're taxing methane and uh, they're, they're just going to hurt the oil and gas industry even more and then subsidize wind and solar uh, even more. And it, it's, it's doubling down. And like you said, it's complete incompetence, but the doubling down, the tripling down, the quadrupling down, it's the definition of insanity. Insanity. We're doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And sitting here in the United States and watching this unfold is, it's like how you just want to shake the people in charge. Be like, how are you doing this, Joe Biden? How are you going to oil and gas executives and begging them to spin up refineries when you're also telling them at the same time that they're not going to be able to sell the byproducts of those refineries within the decade? Do you understand capital allocation, investment, and return on initial investment? Like that's there's no incentive to spin up these refineries if you're telling them they're not going to be able to sell products within seven years. Well, yeah, and it, we go back to this. I mean, the fundamental issue is, I mean, whatever people's perspective on climate change is, and my attitude is, yeah, the, the climate change agenda is farcical, but should we be more responsible custodians of the planet? Yeah, should we avoid dumping enormous amounts of tonnage of plastic in oceans? Of course we should. There are things we should be doing. But the, the problem is there are people driving government policies who actually, again, this is part of this schizophrenic mindset of no grip on reality, who genuinely think if we don't do these policy measures, then, you know, oceans are going to rise 50 feet. The world will end in 10 years. I mean, okay, the fact, I'm not saying the same people have said this, but we've had this for as long as I can remember. I remember Molden of Tremember comments like this in the 80s the 90s it's you know to varying degrees but there are people who genuinely believe this and then from a political standpoint whether these politicians agree or disagree they know it's political suicide if they come out and say actually we don't believe in okay you know we had trump who stood up against this and went trump's an exception and he's not a politician but these career politicians the, the whole basis of their existence is political survival. So they're never going to rock the boat. They're not going to say anything that deviates away from this idea that, you know, we need to move to more renewable energy sources. But again, it's one of those situations where rather like sanctioning uh, Russia and this idea, well, we can sanction Russia and cut off oil and gas. It doesn't matter because there's this magical oil and gas supermarket somewhere where someone in the world's producing millions of barrels of oil per day, just waiting for us to buy them on the off chance, you know, that at some point in the future there might be a, a conflict with Russia or whoever else. This is just not reality. And it's like the so-called green revolution. They don't grasp. As we said, maybe it was in the recording earlier, how do you manufacture a wind turbine? You, know, you need plastics, you need oil. What are the raw constituents that are in making wind turbines? What's the mining cost of this? And at the end of its life cycle, you're going to have to throw it in a landfill site. You can't recycle it. So they're not thinking long term. If we pursue this energy policy, 
in 20, 30 years, are we going to start running out of other resources? You know, like we want to produce a lot of batteries. Are we going to deplete lithium resources in the world to the point we don't have any? What's the implication of that? Nobody's thinking about this. So is the, is the policy decision where we, you know as well as I do, politics is just a four-year cycle in the US or a five-year cycle in the UK, for example. So they just want to get re-elected. They never make policy decisions in the West that says, well, if we're going to implement this, what's the, what's the repercussions 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? No one thinks like that. That's the big difference with China and Russia. They have long-term plans. They think about the future and go, what's the implications? So, yeah, Russia's said we'd like to use more renewable energy sources, but we have to phase it in. China says the same. You know, we have to phase things in gradually. Where the West, prior to the Ukraine war, came out with this farcical idea, we can just switch off nuclear. We don't need oil and gas or coal. Let's just go for renewables. And not understanding they couldn't produce enough energy via renewables. So we already had energy shortages. And then, of course, with Europe being a great example of this, with Nord Stream 2, Germany could have had double the amount of energy. But no, it, because of sanctions, it went... You know, and, and because of all the investment in political capital, they go, well, we can't do that So, because you know, the United States will get angry with us and, and we have to show a united front because we have to combat the aggressor, Russia. So, no, we're not going to switch it on. And, and then, of course, they had the farcical situation with Nord Stream 1 where there was an issue of a, a gas turbine that went to Canada and seemed supposed to fix it. And then because of sanctions, there was all these issues of sending it back. And then, and anyway, this this whole political shit show. And, of course, it's still not back. So Nord Stream 1 is running at 20%, 30% of its operational capacity. And and so what's the immediate? Hang on. We're hugely short of gas in Europe. And you know, obviously Nord Stream 1 and 2 go to Germany. The logical conclusion would be, we have to just switch Nord Stream 2 on, get, sort out the issue with the gas tub and get Nord Stream 1 running at 100% capacity again. And this will start to alleviate the energy crisis, which, as we said, energy is the lifeblood of a nation. Without it, you have nothing. We don't produce any energy. We can't grow any food. We can't heat and light our homes. So we're in serious trouble. I mean, to feed ourselves is a serious problem all year round, eating Less so in the summer months, although Europe's not, you know, doesn't necessarily have the greatest summers. But you know, we're in the window at the moment where it's less of a problem. What happens when you get into autumn and winter? We've got massive problems. But they go, no, because we've invested all this political capital. We've told people that the sanctions will inflict maximum pain on Russia. Okay, we'll have to suffer a little bit on a short-term basis, but that's selling the politicians the idea when the Ukraine war started, oh, it would be over very quickly because Russia will capitulate. They'll capitulate economically, financially they'll collapse and Putin will be deposed as the president. He'll be shipped off in exile to Siberia and that will be the end of the problem. The war will be over. We can all get back to normal and, and it won't be a problem. And then, of course, none of that was ever going to be a reality because, again, Westerners came to the conclusion that Russia's military was incapable of fighting the war. There was all these lies about Russia was going to take Ukraine in three days, and when they didn't, that's because they're getting bogged down. No, they had no intention of taking Kiev. 
and I'm not a military expert. My military knowledge is quite small. But if you've got, you know, a small force of 50,000 uh, troops, you're not going to take a capital city with 3 million people. This is nonsense. So, again, because of all this political you know, capital invested, they can't backtrack because you and I know Western politics, you backtrack. You're finished. Your political career's over. So they have to keep doubling, like you say, doubling, tripling, quadrupling, etc. debt on the narrative until eventually it gets to the point we're kind of there now where we don't see the same rhetoric coming out of Western nations about Russia losing the war. They are starting to try and say, okay, we've got an energy problem, so you know the green revolution has to be temporarily put on hold. So let's just switch on nuclear power plants again. Oh, we need coal, but, but Europe's going, no, we're, we're banning coal from, I think, the 10th of August. I mean, what are the ramifications there? But they're all over the place. And you're starting to see in Western media, I think there was some article on CBS News, starting to look like the throne Zelensky under the bus, questioning, well, we're putting tens of billions of dollars of investment. Where's it going? Where's it being spent? And it's very, very clear that elements in the West are starting to finally realise that Russia is, whether people like it or not, it's, this is a statement of fact, Russia's winning the war. They, you know, It doesn't matter how slow they go. The progress isn't measured by how slow you go. It's by how much more land are you taking. They control the Gansk now. They control large parts of Donetsk and Zaporizhia and Kherson. And the question is, at what point does Russia stop trying to take? Are they going to move into Odessa and Nikolaev? We don't know. But the issue is Russia's winning the war. This People can sit there and argue as much as they like. This is reality. Deal with reality. It's not. When I say this, it's not a question of me supporting Russia. For me, the war should never have happened. But the war didn't happen just for the sake of it. There are reasons, and people in the West have to accept. There's an uncomfortable reality that we a lot of people don't want to deal with. But there were problems in Ukraine and in the Donbass region since 2014. This, these are statements of fact. And okay, whether Russia's call on the fact they felt that the, the on the east of the contact line that the, the separatists in Donbass threatened the massacre, that's open to debate, but they believed it was the case. They went, we have to go in, because ironically the West thought Putin going in and starting the war would finish him politically. If he hadn't gone and this massacre had happened, he would no longer be president. It's as simple as that. That's the mindset of Russian people. So whatever people's perception is, Russia went in and, yeah, they started the war, and I've made this point very clear. Every single Ukrainian or Russian who dies as a result of this war is highly regrettable. I'm no fan of war. I don't want to see wars, but we have to understand and be mature and say, why is this war happening? What's the ramifications of this war? What's going to be the outcome for the West? And from the Western perspective, we're seeing an aggravation in inflationary problems. We're seeing problems with supply chains, lack of commodity. And if you have high inflation in energy terms, then it's going to translate to every other facet of your economy, as we know quite simply, because to produce food, as we've said, you need energy. And if energy costs are skyrocketing, your food production costs are going to skyrocket. So, therefore, you start to have serious inflationary problems. Okay, inflation is a problem as well because we printed trillions of dollars of money and 
for some reason, economists seem to forget the fact that if you print money, it causes inflation ultimately. And we made the point, I think, last time that the big difference is prior to the pandemic started, they've tried to ring fence it inside the financial system, which means effectively that's why we see asset price inflation. That's where the inflation is. So bond markets in in housing and equities, they try to keep the money inside. But once you print money, give it to the likes of you and I in Main Street, you're then going to create inflationary problems. So these are all very obvious manifestations of problems. So the question is, how long does the Ukraine war carry on for? And it's interesting, Harry Zelensky is trying to persuade the Chinese, meaning Xi Jinping, to talk to the Russians and try and broker a deal to end the war. Now, whether that's his own making, whether he's doing that in defiance of the people who are dictating the, the war policy, and it's certainly not Zelensky, and it's most certainly the Americans. I mean, the Americans, are, and the British for that matter, are not fighting the war directly, but they're as good as fighting the war. They're the ones responsible for Ukraine po- uh, policy of how they prosecute the war themselves, and it's been a complete failing. You have to bear in mind that since 2014, all the major cities in Ukraine have been fortified. This war was always known it was going to happen at some point. It was a question of when, not if. And it's been an abysmal failure. And the weapons provided to Ukraine have been substandard. Okay, there's an argument, and quite legitimately, that the Ukrainians don't know how to operate some Western military hardware. That's true. So they lack the training. But again, that's a completely horrendous oversight by the West. So the West has clearly demonstrated its ineptitude of fighting a ground war. The Russians are succeeding, and whether people like it, it doesn't matter. That's reality. And we, the longer this war goes on, the stronger Russia's negotiating position will be. Because at some point, the war has to end. The question is, does the war end with Russia controlling all of Ukraine or part of Ukraine? Or is there independent republics linked to Russia? It's, that's, that's the question. So if Russia controls all the way around to Odessa, it landlocks this rough state of Ukraine. What does that mean? But the longer the war goes on, the, the risk is Russia's um, terms to end the war will get worse from a Ukrainian perspective or a Western perspective. Because what happens if Russia turns around and says, OK, we'll agree to... To, to a peace settlement, but here's the here's the agreement. Ukraine is going to be completely demilitarized. We're going to insist on having Russian peacekeeping forces in Ukraine to make sure a war never happens again. We're going to insist that it's written literally in blood, so to speak, that you'll never join NATO. You're going to be a completely neutral nation. How does that pan out? What What's the ramifications of this? Okay, we're surmising what the outcome will be. But there was certainly evidence back in April that the the Ukrainians wanted to end the war and the British and the Americans told them, no, keep going because you'll win the war. Well, they were never going to win the war. This was an attempt to think, well, we'll eventually crush Russia economically, financially. And the longer the war goes on, the chances are the the Russian people will demand the overthrow of Putin. Well, his popularity is higher than it's ever been. The Russian economy is is managing perfectly well. Its financial system stabilised. There's people who argue the whole ruble thing's fast, but it isn't. I mean, that's just sour grapes from people who are saying that 
the Russian ruble will go to 300 to the dollar. And it's never going to happen because Russia has had time since 2014 to understand. And there, there was always the rest that were going to be cut off from Sweden. But I've made this point before elsewhere, and I think really if we look in historical terms, whoever ultimately, whether it was a group of people or some individual came out with the idea in the first place, is one thing sanctioning banks, is one thing cutting them off from SWIFT, that's bad enough. But if you take a central bank and say, we're going to cut the central bank off from SWIFT, and in the process, we don't know how what the figure really is, but we're going to steal hundreds of billions of dollars of legitimate Russian Forex reserves. That is the worst decision ever made in history because in doing so, the rest of the world, including the United States' allies in inverted commas, went, hang on, we might be next. So the global mm -hmm. south's going, in Asia's going, well, if we defy America, they don't like something, they might do it to us, and we don't have the resources like Russia as we would collapse very rapidly. It's the same with Africa. It's the same with the Middle East. And rapidly, the United States is suffering an enormous backlash through this policy-making decision. Because it does, I mean, the, the optics it sends to the world is we can't trust the United States. Because what happens if we want to, you know, impose our sovereignty on our own nation? What happens if we want to trade with someone in the world you don't want us to? Well, maybe you'll crush us economically, financially, and we can't withstand this. So again, a ludicrous policy decision that ultimately was made in, in haste that, well, if we do this, it'll crush Russia. And of course, it, was, it would never crush Russia. But I said this at the time in the backlash from people going, this is ludicrous. You're just a, a Putin apologist. You, you're just a Kremlin stooge. No, this is reality. And anyone who understands Russia knew that this would never happen. But again, this is the problem. If you had someone politically in the West who, who actually came out and said, hang on a minute, but we thought through the ramifications of sanctioning Russia, what does this mean for us in terms of the backlash you know if we cut russia off in in energy terms what happens i mean if russia had switched off all the energy to the west the west would have been in absolute meltdown they didn't okay things have happened which have caused the energy supply to decrease which is basically the west's fault it's their stupidity in terms of, of sanctioning but there's no thought process and we need to get to the point and we probably will in the next decade while in the West, we actually have politicians who are there to serve the interests of, of the people and to serve the interests of the country who sit there and go, no, we sanction Russia. This will be a disaster for us. So what do we do? We don't want the war, of course. That's absolutely correct. But what are we going to do to circumvent the war? Well, the answers existed ever since Min the Minsk agreements were signed. All they had to do was get the Ukrainians to implement them, and they kept telling the Ukrainians, don't implement Minsk, the Minsk agreements. We would not have had a war. Russia would not have been in anywhere but, uh, in anywhere but possibly Donbass, and Donbass was going to have autonomy, so maybe they would have just been an independent republic. That would have been the end of the problem, where the, the United States told the Ukrainians not to, and the consequences are now far worse for the West. It's strengthened Russia's hand globally. It's forced more and more nations to literally say, well, we're going to back Russia. 
we're backing Russia's policy decisions and rather like China and Taiwan, and maybe we can talk about later. 160 nations in the world said we support China's stance over Taiwan and the one China principle. Whether we agree with that or not is not the point. That's the reality that's playing out. So they didn't learn the lesson with, with Ukraine and the United States is hell-bent trying to provoke China with Taiwan. And the same problems are already starting to manifest itself. And it's about time someone somewhere went, this is insane. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? And yeah, I'm a Westerner. So when I'm deeply critical of the West policy making decisions, because I care principally what the outcome is for the West. I live in the West. We live in the West. We're going to have to suffer the consequences. And the way things are going, they'll be extremely severe. We don't know what ultimately what the outcome will be, but that's why I'm so critical because we are the ones who are going to suffer the consequences. So as I say to people, if you have a problem with me having a problem with our well-being, you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, why don't you have the same concerns? Because that's where we're at. This is reality and we need to deal with the reality. Yeah. And it's, again, going back to like doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. Like uh, what the UN's doing right now, hastily approving the application of Sweden and other countries, and uh, the the narrative machine that's been running here in the U.S. It's just been extremely bizarre to watch play out as as you see the narrative being spit out by the media and the government, and then actually see what's happening on the ground. Like you mentioned, everybody thought the sanctions was going to absolutely cripple. Russia, however, the ruble has rallied to its highest point against the dollar in quite some time. We've had uh, Russia not collapse as an economy, gain more ground in Ukraine. And it's just it's seeing where we are today compared to where we were when we had our first conversation, which was, uh, I believe, like a week after the war had broken out or two weeks after the war had broken out. It's it's been disgusting just to sit here and watch people objectively lie to the public time and time again. And as an American taxpayer, one thing you mentioned, the tens of billions, I think it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars now that have been sent to Zelensky's um, administration from the West. Like as a taxpayer, like we, we couldn't, we couldn't sign a $40 billion small business economic relief plan during the lockdowns. However, we've, we've sent, I think we signed a bill to send $70 billion over to Ukraine. And, and since then we've, we've signed several others that have sent billions more dollars over. And it's, what is happening with that money? What, what is that going toward? Is it getting thrown into just some dark pool slush fund? Are people actually uh, getting weapons and putting up a defense? Like, the paper trail of all those dollars that is, are being sent over uh, as a taxpayer would like to see that. And it just see, there's something very odd going on. Like you mentioned, it's probably not Zelensky pulling the strings, but uh, the United States probably led by our central intelligence agency and other intelligence agencies across the world really leading this charge. I mean, wasn't there a few instances where uh, British soldiers were, were caught fighting on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah, well, to take the point again, it's worth just reiterating. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 
we see a situation in the West where there's always money available, inverted commas, to fight, fight the, you know, this, this, this enemy, whether it's, in this case, Russia. You know, we, we, we've always got the money to support Ukraine. And you're absolutely right. The amount that's been spent legitimately is probably a fraction. The question is, where's the rest of the money? Yeah. The other thing we know for a fact, and there has been admission even in the West, that a, a significant proportion of arms is ends up in other parts of the world. A lot of some of them have turned up in the Middle East. They're now in control of the ISISs of this world. I mean, there's a black market, and and someone's profiting enormously. I mean. There was instances where there was Ukrainians selling arms to Russians. <laughs> this is the absurdity of what's going on. And the argument is, yeah, you can't track where arms are going. You can't track in the in the theatre of war. But but, even, but at least that's one thing. There has been some pushback on this, saying, well, where's the money going? Where's it being spent? And you're absolutely right. But I always come back to this point, particularly with the United States, with its ridiculous military budget annually, what is it, 770 or whatever billion dollars. My argument is, I know, and it still surprises me, how few Americans are sat there going, if you can afford to spend all this money, which you're just basically pouring it down the drain with with horrendous consequences for, you know, with wars and regime change around the world, why aren't Americans going, why aren't you spending this money domestically? Why aren't you rebuilding infrastructure, like you say, supporting people have innovation, try to start to create a high-tech manufacturing base in the United States. And if over the last 10, 20 years, these trillions and trillions of dollars have been spent domestically, then the United States could have now been the most, the strongest economy in the world. It could have had, you know, I'm not talking about dominance, but being a very strong nation amongst equals. It could have led the world by example, the world would have trusted the US. And it could have been a fantastic for domestically and internationally. It could have done all these things. It's done none of them. And very few Americans seem to realize and, and ask the question, why are we allowing this? I mean, but it but again it's how it's sold more in the US than anywhere else. It's like you could have universal health care for nothing. That's socialism. That is New York we have to pay for our health care. No, you don't have to pay. Okay, you, maybe people made a smaller contribution, but the point is, that's the level of indoctrination that makes people go, well, I should pay for all these things. Otherwise, it's socialism. No, you shouldn't have to pay for all these things. Health care should be a universal right. This isn't about socialism. This is common sense. Because, again, a healthy nation is extremely important for for the future prospects of a nation. So it's that kind of level of indoctrination where people think, oh, that's acceptable. They don't ask the obvious question. Where's, and like you say, where's the money going, right? And there's just this endlessly writing, almost not blank checks, but it's a billion dollars this week. It's a billion dollars in two weeks or whatever, or billions of dollars. Where's it going? Where's it being spent? And there needs to... And, this is one of those situations where imagine if $100 billion had been invested wisely in, in the U.S. economy in some way. That's, that is what Americans should be demanding and asking questions and saying, this is how it should be. And obviously, as the West is in terminal decline, its economies are collapsing, its financial systems collapse. there's going to come a point 
when Americans are going to turn around and go, hang on a minute, enough's enough. You're not going to spend $700, $800 billion a year financing whatever it is financing. And, and again, the question is, where's that money being spent? Is it legitimately being spent? Is money being siphoned off somewhere? You know, there's, there's all the issue of what black ops are going on, what, what's the intelligence agency's role in this, and all these questions most people never ask. But, but at some point, those questions need to be asked, and they will be asked, and it's going to create a very uncomfortable, you know, sort of situation for those in notionally, at least in political power, or the people levering political power in the military-industrial complex. And someone's going to have to turn around and say, enough's enough, because you're going to have to start to, to, to actually address the needs of the American people, because the lack of investment in the United States is a staggering. I mean, as I say, for, for notion that a nation that's supposed to be, was the hegemonic power, domestically, the lack of investment in the U.S. is, is just self-explanatory, and the U.S. should have done a whole bunch of things very different. And we'd now be talking about a world where the U.S. was respected, where the U.S. had a very vibrant role, where the U.S. could be a great nation amongst equals, where it actually cooperated with other nations and went, well, okay, yeah, you do have a monopoly on energy, but we don't need to go to war with you or try and remove your leadership. Let's work together. We need energy. We need cheap energy, okay, because we, we have these aspirational ideas of what we want to do with our economy and work together in cooperation. And but, but from my experience far too often, this is going back decades, there's a mentality, particularly in the US, where it's it's zero-sum game. You're either with us or against us. It's always an endless competition. We have to beat you. We have to defeat you. And if your nation becomes too strong from our perspective, then we have to crush you. This just doesn't work anymore. This is not how the world works. And they still haven't adjusted to the fact that you're not going to crush Russia and China. And the more you try to crush them, the more the U.S. is isolating itself. And the United States is still heavily dependent on other parts of the world, including the Russian Chinese, for commodities. Rare earth metals, for example. The list is endless. And not realizing, you know, again, we don't have this supermarket where there's just these rare earths lying on a supermarket shelf and we can just go, well, we're not interested in you selling it to us, China and Russia. We'll, we'll just go and buy it from these other guys somewhere in the world who don't exist. And not grasping the reality that the US is heavily dependent. This is how the world operates. And trying to say, I'm going to, to for example, we're going to reshore semiconductor production. Sounds great in principle. Do it in reality and it's not feasible. It, you're only, you could spend $200 billion trying to do this. It's never going to work. So instead of fighting the rest of the, the, the Chinese and the Russians, work with them and say, we want, we, let's work together. Let's lower the cost of semiconductor production. It benefits all of us. But they can't, at the moment, they're incapable of doing that. But in the process, not only are they destroying their own nation, they're also just increasingly alienating the United States. And the longer this process goes on, the lack of trust is going to be very hard to turn around. And so therefore, what's going to happen in the future? Bearing in mind the West has kind of reached saturation. We've saturated in debt. We've saturated in terms of consumption. 
we, we've exhausted financialization of economies. We've reached the end of the line. We reached it in 2008 and kidded ourselves we can carry this on. We, we're not competitive because we have to pay too high salaries and, we, and because of inflation, people want higher and higher salaries, so we become less and less competitive. It's not feasible. If the United States wants to reshore manufacturing production, apart from having to cooperate with the Chinese, the Russians and the global south, they're also going to have to pay the equivalent of Chinese wages. Well, as things stand, if you pay Chinese wages in the United States, nearly everybody would just be bankrupt. They couldn't pay for food, they couldn't pay their mortgages, they couldn't pay for anything. Businesses would collapse. It just wouldn't be feasible. So that's why the West has to recalibrate itself and realise it has to live within its means and adjust its whole cost differentials, its economy, its financial system. Because the global South, including the Chinese and the Russians, have enormous growth potential in their economies. Because... They haven't reached saturation point by any stretch of the imagination. And in Russia's case, they have an abundance of, it, of commodities, not just oil and gas. And they've hardly scratched the surface in terms of, not what we're talking about, okay, there's the argument of the green revolution, but, you know, just exploiting the planet for every resource ultimately is damaging. It might not be in the next 10, 20 years, but ultimately it's, it's a very dangerous thing to do. But in principle, they've probably... 70, 80% of their land mass is full of commodities they've never even explored. They haven't even began to, to assess the potential. So it's like with Iran. Iran can produce a lot more energy at very cheap prices. So this is the future. These are the growth sectors of the world. I mean, look at Africa. Africa hasn't even started the process. They, In 50, 100, 200 years, they could be the major player in the world because because of the fact they haven't reached saturation in consumption, in, in wages, in, in, in productivity of their nation. They've barely got going because the West has exploited them. When the West isn't allowed to exploit them, they have enormous growth potential, as does Asia, as do, and even the Middle East is finally going, we need to change, you know, we need to stop feuding with Iran, we need reproachments. So the Saudis have said, they've had endless discussions the last couple of years going, yeah, we don't agree with you on lots of things, but it's in our interest to cooperate. And it's the same with the UAE wanting to cooperate with Iran and the UAE and the Middle East going, well, China and Russia are a better bet. They're more reliable. If they strike a deal, they stick to it. They're compliant with agreements. The United States never is. And it's, it's, it's hardly a, a secret that the United States has been trying to get rid of MBS for about the last three years, consistently trying to get him removed because he's moved into the China-Russia It's very self-explanatory that that's the case. But these are the fundamental issues we, we have now. But in the West, there's this belief that we can just keep going, that then the financialization of the economy is working. Well, since its inception in the 1980s, it's been a complete failure. And if we don't see how it's a failure, look at the dot-com era, look at 2008. 2008 was the clearest indication it had completely failed. Because you don't create this enormous wealth in the financial sector that trickles through the economy. And then we have all this money and we can just spend it into the economy as, as consumption being, which is why they abandoned all our, effectively, our manufacturing and production capability. Because somebody somewhere, again, another spectacular failure, went, no, we don't need that. Just offshore it, 
give it to the Chinese, that's fine, we don't need this. Financialization is the future. We're going to make enormous amounts of profits and it will serve the entire economy of the United States or Britain or, or the European Union. It was, it was impossible because ultimately it was going to fail because it was completely abused. It was, there was wanton speculation and 2008 proved this and it's been going on worse since 2008. And the problem is it's, it's an illusionary world. There's no reality to it. There's no substance. Everything's now fictitious numbers on the screen. So whether it's GDP, whether it's inflation, whatever metric, they're all lies. There's no basis in reality. So we have crazy situations also within the economic financial system where we have these people who don't understand basics. None of these people even understand the basics of economics, the basis of printing money has a, there's a consequence for them. They don't understand any of this. And they're demonstrating they don't understand any of this because they haven't grasped yet that in 2008, you have QE zero interest rate policy. You can do it for a few months. It can be a short, sharp shot. Well, we've got a problem. Slash interest rates, pump the economy full of money to get it back on an even keel and then stop this. Raise interest rates and just use it as a short-term measure to just get through a huge economic financial shock. I remember in early 2009 writing to Western governments going, if you do this for more than a few months, it's over. You are destroying the West. It's, it's game over. It might take 10 years or 5 years or 15, but you've destroyed it. You cannot do this. No response. Okay, that's fine. But there well, is it's, history. It's, it's not, because, I mean, not only is it stupid, but it's just read a history book. Like I, I wrote in a newsletter last week that I sent out. Like it, it seems like, because going back to the, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's create again, the, the Orwellian propagandistic uh, naming of these acts is laughable. But one carve-out in that act is the fact that the U.S. federal government is going to hire 87,000 IRS agents to go throughout the United States and harass uh, middle class people and small businesses to make sure that they're sucking every penny of tax revenue that they can from the American populace. And this is like, and you mentioned like the, the West is saturated and the American empire specifically via the military industrial complex, it just spread itself too thin around the world. And it literally cannot keep up with all the operations that has going on. You cannot manage a military operation as large as the U S is trying to embark on globally and this is just the the exact playbook of the, the crumbling roman empire of fourth and fifth century i mean just to a t print a bunch of money uh, expand your your military as far as you can to try and you know, get as much control as you can while at the same time having bread and circuses at home uh, and and telling people that everything's going to be okay we're going to print money uh, and we're going to send a bunch of tax collectors out to make sure that we're getting all the revenue that, that the state has deserved. And it's just, I mean, you, you hear the the phrase, humanity doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And it's, especially in 2022, when we have the access to communications technology that we have, and we have the the ability to understand history because of all the information that's at our fingertips, it's 
befuddling that we're literally going and just doing the exact same playbook that uh, crumbling empires of the past have done and not thinking critically like, oh, wait, this hasn't worked in the past. Why is it going to work for us right now? Like the, the IRS carve out in this Inflation Reduction Act is astonishing. I, I think that 87,000 new IRS, IRS agents would make that like, bigger than parts of the military, bigger than the intelligence uh, uh, apparatus that we have here all agencies combined bigger than uh, all, all the health and food administrations that we have just to go out and harass taxpayers uh, for their tithe to the government. And again, going back to the conversation about sending all these billions of dollars over to Ukraine, it's like as an American taxpayer, the fact that my government is now uh, spinning up a, essentially a small army to go harass citizens for tax money it's like wait, wait a second like where is the tax money that i have been paying which is already pretty significant going like how you me paying taxes has led us to this situation and yet you want more to fix the problem like it is and like you said it's, it's, we don't want this to be the reality that we live in but if you're a logical critical thinker is able to objectively just assess what's going on it's it's you you have a dying empire trying flailing around trying to grasp on to the last sense of control that it has and like you said like americans we have a lot of guns that's what i I think the social shift could happen depending on how quickly this new irs task force is spun up like once these agents go out and start harassing and that's the thing. They're going to harass middle-class Americans. They're not going to go after the billionaires or the large corporations. They're going to go after small businesses and middle-class people. I think that will be the tipping point where people are like, wait a second. You've materially made our wor- our lives worse off over the last three decades, five decades, whatever it may be. Now you're asking me for more when I can't afford a $400 emergency expense. Hey, that could be a point at which people stand up and say, hey, this is not happening. Yeah, and let's look at just some simple maths. I don't know what they're going to pay these 87,000 IRS inspectors. I know it's debatable how long they'll stay employed, but let's just say it's on an annualized basis. I mean, what are they going to pay them? I don't know. I don't want to go raise, but if it was $50,000, say, you're talking best part of 500 with probably benefit, at least 500 million dollars a year or just alone then if you start trying to squeeze the extra bit of money out to the middle class the middle class sadly in western societies are the most leveraged so you're going to i mean and maybe a lot of these people have small businesses you're going to kill the small business you're going to cause huge unemployment as a result of it you may, you know, I mean, how, how many tens of millions of Americans might this affect when you start, you know, it's the cause and effect. It's like, you know, it, it might seem to be a small problem, but it becomes a huge problem because if you affect one person's livelihood, you can, they've got a small business, you might cause the small business to go bust. That might make 10 people unemployed and that small business might serve two other businesses and makes all those people redundant. I mean, okay, we, we're extrapolating to, to illustrate a point, but this is the problem. No one thinks of the consequences, and this is 
in the West, but again, it's all sound bites. It sounds great. People out there all go, yeah, they're, they're going to claw all this taxation money back. There's all these people who should be paying tax who are, you know, these tax dodgers or tax evaders, not actually asking the question who's really evading tax, like you say billionaires or big corporations who, sh- who don't pay anywhere near their fair share of tax. So it's just illustrative of why Western politics has completely failed. I mean, it's not a democracy. There's no democracy in Western nations. People think I get to vote every four or five years. But you're not voting anything. You're, nothing changes. Things just get progressively worse. There's you know, occasionally, okay, whatever we think about Trump. Trump was a wild card in, in US politics. He only lasted one term, whatever the reasons for that were. And and once he became in politics, he, his hands were tied behind his back. And I'm not a supporter of Trump, I'm just observing what happened. But in the general sense, it, here's the point, if you and I, me not as a man, but if I was an American citizen, you and I said we're going to create a political party and we, we're going to address these problems. And even if we had enormous amounts of support in relative terms, are we ever going to form a government in the US? No chance, as things don't. There's no room for another political party. And that's the problem. This is the illusion. There's no democracy in in the West. People think voting every four or five years means a democracy. I'm sorry to burst the bubble, but it's it's nonsense. Because nothing changes. It's not as though voting someone else changes the status quo whatsoever. You might get some little bit of tinkering in, in foreign policy. But really, the United States government's not about anything domestic. It's always about the, the, the policy decisions globally in terms of US geopolitics geopolitical uh, policy making. That's where the US is concerned about. As you say, the bread and circuses thing with domestically. But okay, things, when we had the pandemic, they had to do something because, I mean, this shows how weak the United States was. The pandemic started, okay, whether whatever people agree or disagree with policy making decisions, for me, they're a complete failure. But the issue is, what did they do? They panicked and went, just print money, just print trillions, give everybody money because if we don't, United States will collapse. Western nations will collapse. This is absolutely true. That's because our economies function on this endless need for debt, endless need for credit. There's there's no kind of growth sectors where businesses grow and evolve. It's always just throw more money at it, just give people more money. You and I, I mean, I endlessly get played morning, noon, and night with emails, texts, everything going, borrow money, lends. Get some money, but don't spend it. Just borrow it. it we'll, we'll give you cheap credit. This has been going on since 2008 because that's how it, our economies function, which is completely unsustainable. So when everything's an illusion and everything's predicated on an illusion, the political entities got away with it for years, for decades, because things weren't actually that bad in the sense they they just didn't do anything. Domestically, the United States got away with it because it had the dollar. And it could effectively say to the world, we'll give you worthless bits of paper. You just give us a whole bunch of free dollars and we're going to black our way through them. Ultimately, economies can't operate on that basis. You have to produce something. Your economy actually has to take a dollar and make two dollars or a dollar twenty. Not take a dollar, recycle it through an economy and make nothing. There's nothing to show. It's just gone. Either it's been spent or you know, the IRS gets a slice or whatever, and it all just disappears, and, and the end product is the dollar is gone. 
and there's nothing to show for it. But they got away with it, and they and they and that's part of the hubris. They thought we can just keep doing this; it's working. What's the problem? The world will just keep taking our dollars, uh, giving us dollars. They'll buy our treasuries, and then by 2014, the world's going to hang on a minute. No. And the Chinese, whether people like it or not, were really angry because they were supportive of the U.S. government. And then in 2008, when the U.S. went, we're just going to print a whole load of money. The Chinese went, "Hang on a minute, where's that relationship? You, you're abusing the relationship. We, you know, we had a we had a sort of agreement in inverted commas. Yeah, you know, you wanted dollars, give us treasuries. You know, it's a reciprocal relationship. You're just now trashing the dollar. You're trashing U.S. treasuries and and it started a cascading process where trust went out the window and the United States foreign policy has engendered such much distrust that nations are de-dollarizing. People can say to the contrary, this is reality. And it's again caused by their foreign policy decisions. But ultimately, it's a statement of fact. You cannot have an economy that, that is endlessly dependent on debt. Because eventually, everybody reaches debt saturation. It's like you and I, you know, I could borrow $10,000 10 years ago but for no reason. Uh, maybe, well, who knows why. But then I've got to pay it back. Then I can't pay it back. So it's like, oh, I'll remortgage, I'll refinance, and I'll just take more debt on. Oh, look at this wonderful housing market. My house is worth twice as much as it was. I'm going to take equity out of my property. What a lie. There is no equity in property because if you sell it, and buy the same house, you're going to pay the same price. So people took equity and they just became more and more leveraged, had more and more debt. Well, if your economy is dependent on that, you're going to get to a point where it can't be sustainable. And it happened in 2008. Now they're just blagging it and they kept it going, going, well, eventually we'll normalize things. Well, you can't normalize things. And now we've got to the point where it's the end. The West is, is just... The West has basically consumed itself to the point it's just eating itself alive because it's not sustained. And 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 that's the fundamental problem that we're at. And it's worth reiterating this point because when you say things like that, people go, I've never heard anyone say that or very few people say it, but this is reality. So the people who go, well, our solution is we'll just reshore all our, all our production. They need to ask themselves, well, how does that happen in reality? How do we achieve that? It's not achievable. Because here's the thing. How, who's going to finance this? Who's going to finance the $5 trillion or whatever the United States need just in infrastructure? Who's going to bring businesses back to the United States when they're not going to be profitable? Because what are they going to do? Manufacture a whole bunch of, of, of uh, goods? which they're going to cost three, four, five times as much. So what does that do to the U.S. economy? It means everyone has to earn five times the salary. Well, if they earn five times the salary, it's a vicious circle. You just create more and more price inflation, become less and less productive. If China manufactures something at a fifth of the cost, is, is the global south going to buy it off China or off the United States? They're going to buy it off uh, China. The idea we become self-sufficient and we can do everything internally in the U.S., well, yeah, it could do a lot more to support its economy, no doubt about it. From an agricultural perspective, I think that's certainly true. But but you can't have this situation where you can just function internally and we're going to have this wonderful internal economy, which it, it just won't be sustainable on the basis of how the, the economy financial system works now. And this, again, is something that's just completely overlooked. 
And 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 this is just the fundamental problem where is that if you have enough people who are supposed to be in positions of, of responsibility in terms of the economics, finance, etc., where actually understand reality. And then if they come out and say it, their career's over. They'll destroy themselves. I mean, it's one thing me saying it and being in the position where I can say these things. And I don't care. You know, it's not, gonna, it's not like I'm going to get sacked from working in a bank, as I used to do. If I said this now and I was working in a bank, they'd fire me. Because this is, how, this is how it works. But there's not enough people telling people the reality and the reality is coming. And there's nothing as things stand we can do unless... And this is the, this is where the, the political capital comes in. Let's just say you had Biden, just because he's the president, and you had well, who knows who's going to be the future prime minister of the UK? Probably Trust. When Trust becomes prime minister of the UK, everyone should leave the UK. But anyway, that's beside the point. Let's just say it's Trust, and then you've got Macron and Scholz, or whoever, and and they go they turn around to the Russians and the Chinese and go, look, it's game over. We can't, it's not sustainable. The US empire's gone. Okay, we're a bit embarrassed. We don't really want to have to admit this, but it's the way we can sort of smooth this process where we can work together and and, and try and readdress the, the fundamental problems that exist. That's what has to happen. I'm not saying it's Bretton Woods, but let's just use that analogy. You have to sit there and work out the differences, work out how the world operates in the future, and there is a new financial system, there's multipolarity. Multipolarity is here to stay. So the United States and its allies have to learn how to integrate into that, how to work. And that's what has to happen. But you imagine any of these politicians saying that they'd be deselect they wouldn't be prime minister within about a month. They'd be they'd be out of office and there'd be a new prime minister and or you know president or whoever it might be. And that's the fundamental problem in the West. We don't. We think we're democratic, but we don't actually have democratic political system that says tells the truth. You know, I mean, there was whether people agree or not, but Roger Waters was on CNN, and he comes out with a whole bunch of statements, and he's talking about reality. And most people watch that and go, "This is a lie." But these are the kind of discussions that needs to happen, where we actually deal with reality, and we start to have to face the uncomfortable truth that. A lot of people pretend doesn't happen or want to deny happens. And until we do that, we're just going to sink more and more into the abyss. We're going to find ourselves more and more isolated on a world stage. I mean, it's one thing, you know, going to the likes of Africa and because the Africans are embracing Russia and China, and particularly Russia lately. And then the United States deciding, well, we can't have this because Russia's having far too much influence in, in the African continent. So they don't go to the African continent and start saying, look, you know, okay, Russia's telling you all these things, but we, we could do all these things. We can work with, you know, we can, we can benefit uh, you know, from each other and win-win cooperation. Now they go in and start threatening the African continent with, well, if you don't, if you start trading more and cooperating with Russia, we'll sanction. So what they're basically saying is what they fear the United States would do, and they're going, hang on. You're threatening us, but you think we want to work with you. And the U.S. just doesn't comprehend that the days of threatening nations is over. You, you, it simply won't be tolerated anymore. But they don't have the basic fundamental grasp. You cannot do this. This is not how the future is going to be. Yeah, it doesn't mean the U.S. has to agree with Russia and China. Why should they on everything? But 
if there's a way the US can benefit enormously from cooperating, so both sides benefit, that's that's just being an adult. That's how the future should be. I mean, it's staggering. We're in, you know, in 2022, and we're starting to talk about this, and people think this is an inachievable objective. It's absolutely how it has to happen because the world is going to have to work this way in the future. We can't have this idea that we're going to become isolationists, that the US can shut the rest of the world out and function internally and we can supply our own market and it all work out swimming well. This isn't reality. It just isn't going to happen that way. And rather like, yeah, Russia can be energy independent and food independent. Of course it is. But it needs to sell those things to someone because it needs to then be able to buy other things that the Russia doesn't currently have. It's the same with China. China needs cheap energy, so it gets it from Russia and Iran, for example, because it's the lifeblood of its economy. So the idea that the U.S. can have everything, energy, commodities, you know, just everything will work internally and and somehow we'll we'll create this new little unipolar world with our little club of friends and we're all going to, to, to coexist in that environment and we'll be perfectly all right and we'll keep chipping away at China and Russia and because eventually they'll they'll crack and multipolarity will be over. And it's just not reality. And that's why the Ukraine wars happened. That's why the US is challenging it uh, with respect to Taiwan in a in a very major way now. Because the US is going, these are a threat to, to unipolarity, even though they don't seem to understand unipolarity is all but dead. So therefore we have to challenge them. We have to, it's a competition, they're adversary. We have to destroy them. And in the process, the United States is dis- and the United Kingdom and, and NATO is destroying itself on the basis that it never grasped the policy decisions are completely flawed. They've failed. And now we see it with Taiwan. It's like more of the same again, because apparently if you keep implementing the same policy decisions, even though they've failed by, the, by some strange law of uh, physics, you can eventually somehow you'll succeed. It, by the law of averages, something's going to change and, and we'll succeed this time, even though we failed miserably with Russia since 2014 because the sanctions didn't start in 2022. They've had them in place since 2014. It's just nations ended up going, we're not going to implement them anymore. They're pointless, who cares? And, and even the United States, who never really implements them anyway, unless it suits them. I mean, if the US wants Russian oil, it goes... No, we don't apply sanctions there. If we want Russian Russia's fertilizer, no, it doesn't apply there. Oh, if we need this Russian bank to, to implement this transaction, it doesn't apply there. But by the way, uh, Europe, if you do it, you're in serious trouble. This is this is how the policy making decisions implement themselves, and this is where we are. And it's just ludicrous. And sorry, but anyone who's trying to defend the West in terms of this policy, sadly, at some point, is going to have a realization. When it, you know, I use this crude analogy, when a ton of manure lands on their own doorstep, they're going to be screaming at the government of their country about their abject failure. But by then it's too late. And we need to have people to understand better that, you know, the West is not serving our interests. They, the West is collapsing and it's desperately trying to prevent multipolarity and it, uh, developing and it sees China and Russia as the principal architects of that and not realizing Iran's a very important nation as well and and go we have to destroy them and it doesn't matter what it's doing domestically 
But again, it's right like the pandemic. I talked to Western World to the UK government and their advisors and said, whatever you think about this, you're going to create economic, financial uh, problems. You're going to create psychological, social problems. You're neglecting areas of the health service so people will die because they didn't get treatment. The attitude is we don't, well, we're not thinking about that. That's not, we're only interested in case numbers because you keep case numbers down, hospitalizations are down, then the health service will cope. And the rest of it doesn't matter. We can just forget about that till tomorrow. Here we are in 2022 or reaping what what they've sown and and consequences are far more severe than whoever died as regrettable as it is in the pandemic. The, the amount of people who are going to suffer and who have already died as a, as a consequence of these policy making decisions is far greater than anything the pandemic would ever have uh, seen. And it's quite interesting. We're starting to see noises coming out in the UK where they're going, if we ever have a pandemic again, we're never going to have lockdown. Because someone somewhere has finally woken up, even though, of course, you know, the horse is long since bolted. So shutting the stable doors irrelevant. But there are people in Western nations who've suddenly gone, hang on, we should never have done this. Okay, we can't politically say that exactly. But they know it was a stupid decision to, to implement them. But at the time, even though maybe some of them realised it, no one was going to politically come out and go, we should end lockdowns. Because they would have been finished politically. <laughs> this, this is what drives Western decisions. It's not nefarious entities per se who are who are driving some weird global policy making decision that says we're going to crush NATO with the West and then we're going to turn them all into serfs and they'll have nothing. Because if that was true, then all these billionaires who got rich on us functioning in their in their world because we had enough money so we could buy all their goods and services. Well, let's take mobile phone operators. If we have nothing, they're out of business. No one will have a mobile phone because we can't afford to buy a mobile phone. So all these big corporations and all these billionaires will go bust. So we're really suggesting they've gone, yeah, I'm happy with this. I'm going to lose my billionaire status and, and all the the trappings associated with that. Of course they're not. They're never going to do that. So again, this is the logical process that they're not doing things deliberately, but there are people taking advantage. And we, that's certainly true in the pandemic. There's no doubt about that. There were you know, big farmers said this is a huge payday and we're going to milk it for all it's worth. No one's disputing that. But that's a world away from saying they ultimately intend to, to you know, it's like, we'll have a lockdown and you'll be permanently locked down. This never happened, as we said earlier. And this is these are the realities of what's unfolding. But what fundamentally drives Western policy is it's short-term, it's just short-term populist agenda, something that sounds right, we're making the right noises, we'll get re-elected. Because, yeah, being in politics, you get all these fringe benefits, some people more than others, of course, and they just want to keep the gravy train. Like in the UK, they get lined up with a nice big fat pension. They're going, well, I've got this big fat pension in the end of it, so when I retire, I'll be, you know, I'll be perfectly happy. It's index linked to inflation. I'm, going to, I'm winning. And they'll just be in politics to serve their own interests. And in the process, they don't rock the boat. So therefore, the idea, okay, there's somebody, these policymakers are somewhere are making decisions, and there's no doubt governments are. You know, the military-industrial complex is a major driver of, of U.S. foreign policy. It's, it, 
it's absolutely a statement of the obvious, but it's also intelligence agencies, et cetera, who, who have a desire to make sure that the United States is the, the hegemonic power. It's also, as much as anything, to try and ensure the dollar remains the world reserve currency, the, you know, because the dollar is a matter of national security. If we, we don't preserve the status of the dollar, the US is dead. It's over. If the rest of the world... And that's increasingly happening, which is why the U.S. has to print trillions of dollars, because the world in reality won't buy U.S. debt. But that is why when Saddam was saying, when I'm not going to, you know, I'm not accepting dollars for oil anymore, the U.S. went, right, you're over. Sorry, bye-bye, you're gone. Same with Gaddafi. They didn't have a problem with Gaddafi for decades running Libya. But as soon as he went, I don't want dollars for oil, I'm going to launch a gold-backed African dinar. They went, sorry, you're gone, because you're threatening the U.S. dollar. You're threatening U.S. hegemony. But, of course, we've gone to such an extreme now that U.S. hegemony is in decline because the world is increasingly moving away from the dollar and saying, well, actually, if we don't move away from the dollar, then we're going to be destroyed because, like Russia could have been destroyed. So, And it's gone back through history. We've seen it where any nation that doesn't comply with the U.S., they try to sanction them into oblivion. Look at Iran, four decades, and they failed. They tried it with North Korea, it's failed. They tried to cripple Syria, it's failed, because sanctions don't work. And you would have thought after four decades with Iran and it not working, someone somewhere would have gone, let's not do this anymore. But no, it's because we believe, because we think we're exceptional, we think we're the greatest nation on the planet, that even though sanctions has never worked for decades, it will have worked this time. Look, it's really going to work with Russia. And here's the, the, the stupid part. There are people in the US administration who genuinely think, well, if we go to Russia, uh, China into a military conflict with, with Taiwan, so maybe they invade, maybe they have missile strikes or something, we're then going to do exactly what we did to Russia, to China, and we're going to convince the whole world that China's this evil, imperialistic, totalitarian dictatorship who wants to spread its influence across the world. Look, they're trying it with Taiwan. And therefore, oh, what must we do? I know, we must sanction China. We must exclude them from SWIFT. We must steal their assets. We must sanction their central bank. And they, this, there are people who think, despite what happened in Ukraine, that this is a viable option. Okay, we might have failed with, with Russia, but we'll succeed with China. And if we succeed with China, it's the end of multipolarity because China will crawl back under the stone that it came from because that's their mentality and, and therefore there won't be a problem. And if China's no longer in the ascendancy, then neither will Russia. So Russia and China are put back in their little box somewhere. It's the end. It's over. But they don't comprehend that this is reality. And, and this is the problem. We're back to this thing where... It's, you would have thought by now someone would have turned around and gone, no, none of this is working. And there are certain cooler heads, certainly in the US military and probably in the intelligence agencies and privately in the Beltway who are going, no, we can't do this. No. And, and this is why you get these huge contradictions where someone's going, well, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're going to arm Taiwan. We're going to, we want to create a separatist movement uh, to... But we do abide by the one China policy. There's a massive contradiction because yeah. there's partly some of the elements who are going, well, hang on. If, if China starts sanctioning us, 
okay, there's the argument it will ha- it will hurt the Chinese economy to some degree. Of course, that's true. Well, look at the trade war with China. Who suffered? Not China. The United States has suffered enormously from this endless trade war, just simply on the basis. If you put tariffs on Chinese goods, China doesn't pay it. If you put 30%, I don't know, on an iPhone, who's going to pay the cost? It's you and I. So we're paying 30% inflation on an iPhone. So we're the ones who suffer. Us, Our domestic economy it creates inflation. And no one sat there and went, hang on. Is, uh, has anyone thought that this is the reality? This is what's going to happen? No, if we do this, we'll crush China. And this is the, this is the problem with, with Western policy decision makers. Okay, governments don't make policy decisions. They just implement. But nobody across the whole food chain of this, these policy-making decisions ever understands reality, ever actually looks at this and goes, we can't do this anymore. But they'll continue to persist doing this. And because they think, okay, Russia's militarily, they've realized Russia's militarily pretty strong. They think China's economically not weak as well. You think about the people who for 10 years or more have got every single year, China's going to collapse because of all its debt. China's economy's finished. Well, China's now reporting record trade uh, surpluses. <laughs> so, so it's doing something right with its economy. It's got enormous assets. He's got enormous gold reserves, enormous forex reserves. And, okay, it has got some internal problems, like its, its housing market. But China instigated the housing market crisis because it turned around and said, you're not doing this anymore. You, you, this wanton speculation's over. China's aware of this. That's not where China's problems are. But we just force-fed this idea well, China's economically weak, so let's let's look at this. If we provoke them into a war in Taiwan, we could sanction them and destroy them. And oh, but but, but China's not Russia because China's military is weak. Look, they've never. When did they last fight a war? Does anyone even remember? So therefore, they don't have the military capability like Russia. So you know, we can roll them over. And if we humiliate them with respect to Taiwan, then the world will go. China's useless. China's weak. China's in, so therefore, look, we need to side with, with the United States because they're the, the dominant military power. They're actually realizing the global south so far is going, we respect China's restraint. That China's shown the restraint it has, we see it as a positive. And the US doesn't grasp this. It doesn't grasp that the rest of the world doesn't think like they. So it remains to be seen what happens with Taiwan at this point. It's very obvious that China will keep doing these military drills just to keep Taiwan on its feet and keep on its toes, sorry, and the United States likewise. But the US is threatening to send the tiller down the Taiwan Strait, which would be extremely provocative. But we are where we are, and let's not get too far ahead with the whole Taiwan yeah. story. But I made the point prior to the Ukraine war, in not quite 12 months ago, the US will be pushing. Russia with Ukraine, they'll push China with Taiwan, and they'll try and nibble away at Iran again. They're not really succeeding with Iran because, ironically, this whole pandemic and this whole energy crisis, it's meant they've actually gone to the Iranians and gone, do you know what, we'd like some of your energy because you can get it really cheap. And So if we're really nice to you and, and we, we walk away from the sanctions a little bit, and you sign the JCPOA, even though we don't really want you to, everything will be fine. And the Iranians are going, you've got to be joking. 
You tried to destroy us for 40 years. We don't trust you. By the way, we're selling all our energy to the Chinese and everywhere else because we bypassed your sanctions and there's nothing you can do about it. So go away. We're not interested in cooperating. And that's why all this Chinese and, and Russian money is piling in because Iran can spec up its, as we said earlier, LNG oil. And it will sell it to the global south and it will turn around to the west and go, why would we sell it to you? Look at what you've done to us. Even Europe. Europe had a way of circumventing sanctions through Instex. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they, they were too frightened and went, no, no, we're not doing it. Well, Iran's going, why do we want to cooperate with you? We're going to cooperate with the nations who stood by us, the Chinese, the global south, the Russians. They're the ones we want to work with. But by the way, the West, you do realize we have enormous gold reserves. We have enormous commodities, not just energy. We're going to be a huge future growth sector in, in, in West Asia, effectively. And we're going to work with the, with the rest of the Middle East, even though you'd never think that was going to be possible. These are all things that have been very obvious for years. I mean, I've talked about it for longer than I care to remember. And I always make this point, people think I'm pro-Russia and pro-China, but just go back. I've said things, these things will happen, and the West is asleep at the wheel. And this is happening. The West could avoid it a lot. A lot of these problems if it actually made the right decisions, but it's incapable of making the right decisions because there's an ideological hatred of, of Russia and increasingly China. And when you've had decades of this ideological hatred, it's very difficult to then turn around to the American or the British people and say, Do you know what? I have to confess, you know, we sort of lied a bit about it. There's a lot of propaganda. We like to now be friends with Russia. I mean, what's going to happen? The people are going to turn around and go, what? What the hell are you talking about? Hang on, we've had decades of this Cold War mentality to varying degrees, and Russia's the Antichrist or whatever people think Putin is. But now you're telling us that's not the case anymore. They can't do this because it's like they've dug this hole, and the only way out of it is to keep digging and digging and doubling, tripling, quadrupling down and instead of going, hang on, can someone give us a hand so we can climb out this hole of our own making? But is, uh, is that going to happen anytime soon? It's extremely unlikely. But this autumn and winter, there's, there's never a, it's not like we're making a bold prediction, but in particularly maybe in Europe more than anything, let's see what happens in terms of food, uh, insecurity, energy crisis. Is it going to change the political will, because here's the thing, what are you going to do? You're going to sit there with the Schultz and the Macrons going, well, I don't want to appear that I'm supportive of China and Russia. Well, unless China, more Russia. Uh, or, and I'm going to just toe the line because I don't want to upset the Americans. Or am I, or, and I'm just going to ignore the fact that half or more of my population are furious with me and the risk of civil unrest. What's more important to my political livelihood the domestic problems that are now spiraling out of control or my foreign policy. And that's the flip. When the flip happens, they're all going to turn around. They have to turn around to the United States and go, no, it's over. We, we're, not going to, we're not going to be your vassal states anymore because we're burning. Rome's burning now. Berlin's burning, whatever it might be. And we're going to have to look. We're going to have to seriously readjust our position. Now, could this happen in autumn through winter this year? It's a possibility. And that would then change the entire dynamic. But the question is, if that did happen, what is Europe going to do? They're going to turn around to the Russians and go, look, we're terribly sorry. 
um, you know, really shouldn't have behaved this way. Can you forgive us? And Russia might just turn around and say, no, go away. You've made your bad. You're going to lie in it. And if that happens, okay, an, an unstable Europe's not good for Russia, by the way, or anyone else in the world. But we don't know because they've made noises recently, both the Russians and the Chinese. We don't trust the West, meaning the EU, including the UK and the US. So those days are over. We're, the trust's gone. And they're kind of half hinting that it, they're not going to let it come back anytime soon. Well, that might just be, again, a bit of bravado. Maybe there was a massive U-turn in the West. They might go, OK, yeah, you, you have seriously screwed up from our perspective, but we're, we're happy to forgive and forget and move on. But if they don't, then what's, what's the West going to do? The West is just going to sink into the abyss more and more. And, and the global South's going... Sorry, you've got what problems? We're fine. Okay, we, we've had food insecurity. We're addressing those problems. We've got access to cheap energy. We're, we're very happy. So we're, we're growing our economy. Yeah, we don't care if the West's burning because what did you do to us for decades and beyond through colonialism, hundreds of years? You basically raped and pillaged our nations and treated us in the most disdainful way. So maybe you need to learn a bit of a painful lesson. And there is a risk that will happen. And we have to hope it doesn't, but we can't rule it out. And this is why, hopefully, we never get to that point, because if we do, then the question is, how long is it going to be before the Global South trusts us again? How long is it going to be before these nations go, well, actually, yeah, okay, we will forgive and forget now. We think you've learned your lesson. Now, if people like you and I were in, in government, we went to these Chinese and Russians and go, look, we really do accept the fact that screw them, but we really need to address this. This is not good for us. It's not good for you to have an unstable nation like the United States, given the size of it, given the number of and also because it's a nuclear power. So this is always a potential concern. So it remains to be seen what plays out. But anyone doing victory laps going, well, we're winning the war in Ukraine needs to wake up. And the idea that the United States is going to do victory laps with respect to Taiwan, again, is just believing in an illusion. It's time we all face reality. It's going to be painful, but it's better we face reality rather than just sitting there going, well, don't worry, you know, we're, we're somehow we'll blag our way through this because we've been blagging our way through it for the last 20 years in financialization of our economies. And destroying the wealth generators and the wealth creators and and creating an unsustainable economy and financial system and we just need to deal with reality it's a it's a point where you keep we keep laboring but we labor it because and it's it's encouraging there's more people in the west seeing this but now i i mean i've said this before and i mean it i want the united states more than any other nation including britain which i'm british to be a successful, strong nation amongst equals, where it pulls all its greatest resources, where it actually becomes a nation the world looks up to and trusts and respect. That's great for America and it's great for the world, and I want to see that, but we are millions of miles away from that currently, and the longer this goes on, the more the, the internal problems in the US will rear their head, and it's the one failure of Trump. Trump was supposed to come in in 2016, and, and go to the Chinese and say, look, we need to rebuild America. We can't do it on our own, and it's going to be very problematic. We're going to have to work in cooperation. Can you assist us? And the Chinese would have done it in 2016. 
of that, there's absolutely no doubt. They, would they do it now? No chance. But that was the one opportunity. Okay, it didn't happen for whatever reason, and the rest is history. But that was an opportunity where something major progress could have been made. But at the end of the day, the US is going to have to rely on the rest of the world in the future, and it can't think that it can function in its own little empire and, and still keep nibbling away at China in, in, in the Indo-Pacific and rally all these allies who will stand against. Because look at Taiwan. I mean, the Europeans aren't exactly going, we support the United States' policy with Pelosi. We don't see it, particularly with the Japanese or the South Koreans. I mean, look at Pelosi goes to South Korea. President, the foreign minister went, oh, I'm sorry, I'm on holiday. I'm too busy to see you. Yeah, because they don't want to antagonize China because they're major trade partners. So, again, China is not Russia and Taiwan is not Ukraine. And whether the West likes it or not, most Taiwanese are very pro-China. Yeah, they want their independent, autonomous state. Of course they do. But they're Chinese. They're pro-China. They want to, to have that affiliation with China. They don't want to become some vassal state of the United States going, well, we're worried about the security of Taiwan, so let's point some missiles at China 200 kilometers away. They don't want any of that. And, you know, whether people believe it or not, about 70% of the Taiwanese people said Pelosi's actions was deeply destabilizing to Taiwan and they disapproved of it. Again, this is reality. And and you know, whether people believe it or not, Taiwan isn't an independent country. We can argue whether it should be or shouldn't be. But, you know, UN regulations have stipulated that since, what, 1948. This is, this is again, reality. It's, it's not an independent nation. It is it, the one China principle from a legal standpoint applies. OK, we can argue whether that should be the case in the future. And that's a whole separate issue. But as things stand, we want to obey the law, the rules of international law, that's that's the reality. But of course, the US doesn't believe in international law. It believes in rules-based law, which is there are no rules. We make it up as we go along. And if we don't like the rule that we implemented yesterday, we'll just scrap it. We'll, we'll say it no longer applies and we'll just move on to some other rule and we'll completely change the goalpost with respect to whatever policy decision it is. Well, they may have got away with that, but they're not going to get away with it. So... You know, we have to hope somewhere common sense starts to prevail. But I'm, I'm not optimistic, but nothing would please me more. And I don't think it's going to happen. But if Biden came out tomorrow and went, OK, we accept it's over, we accept the hegemony's dead in the water, and we're going to have to recalibrate our entire foreign and domestic policy, and we're going to work with the Chinese and the Russians, it would be the... A, a wonderful day. I'd be the, the first person to say this is the greatest decision the United States has made in its history, in a positive sense. And that's literally what's going to happen. And whether Westerners like that or don't like it, that's the reality. We can't believe that we, you know, that we can destroy an, a nation that has effectively is has an abundance of energy. It's food secure. It has the commodities the world needs. It has a growing economy in Russia, and, and whether we like China or not, it doesn't matter. It, it has a vibrant economy. Okay, yeah, it has challenges, but not the challenges the West thinks. Yeah, of course it has challenges. Isn't it? But we're not here to tell China how to run China. It's like COVID policy for me in China is to madness. But the average Chinese person is totally behind it. That's what they want. 
They think the government's being responsible. Why? Because Chinese people's viewpoint is, it's not about me. It's about future generations. It's about my grandchildren. It's about my neighbor's grandchildren. It's about my village. It's about my city. It's about my region. It's about the whole country. Everything's geared about the nation state and what's beneficial to the nation, not me on an individual basis. That's why they, in the vast majority of cases, they totally approve of COVID policy. They said it, it's the, the right thing to do. Now, we can sit here in the West and go, I don't agree with this, but it, it's irrelevant. That's what the Chinese people want. They demand it. The government gives it to them. They're happy. If you did that in the West the way they do it, we'd be going, no, this is totally unacceptable. But we have to learn to understand that just because we don't agree with it doesn't mean that we should change it. You know, we, we're not here. We shouldn't be here to change cultures and attitudes of nation or dictate them in economic terms or financial terms. We need to go, okay, we might not agree with you with regards to Taiwan. We may have issues with you with regards to Hong Kong or whatever it might be. We're not happy with what Russia's doing in Ukraine or maybe we're not happy with, with Russian policy towards Syria or whatever or Iran, but we're going to have to live with this. We're going to have to work together and realise that's how adults behave. I mean, you know, that's the definition of what an adult should be is. You don't always agree with everything. But you have the, the the attitude of accepting people who have differences of opinion, and and you have to just accept that. That's how it is. That we're all different, and nations are different. Okay, Europeans are fairly similar, but even in Europe, there's diverse thought process, diverse culture, and we just have to accept that just because we might think this is an appropriate policy decision doesn't make it right, and we. We have to get away from zero-sum game mentality. And the US needs to go, well, instead of demanding I want it all, I want to, instead of having 100% of nothing, why don't we have 50% of 100%? Because do you know what? We'd be so much better off with the 50% of 100% rather than having nothing of 100%. They're really simple concepts, but that's what we need to, to move towards. And it's not just exclusively the US. The UK is as bad, and Europe's as bad. You know, they, and they just need to realise, and as this Western financial system and economies are just unsustainable, eventually it will become a situation where it, they, the illusion will completely give way to reality, and, and then they're going to have to face the painful reality, and they're going to have to face the painful reality of how we react to this as people and this is coming and whether we like it or not that's the future and we so if we change sooner we might mitigate some of the problems because things are getting infinitely worse on a week by month by quarterly half yearly yearly basis yeah well that's i think that's the big question right is it seems like there's two paths to resolving this on the geopolitical level you just piss everybody off that you essentially turn into isolationists you get isolated from the rest of the world as they go build the future they want or since this is all built and financed on a mountain of debt and cheap fiat currency at some point like the fed can only do what it has been doing since 2008 for so long before credit markets completely break and it collapses into itself. And so I guess that like the question of end game 
especially with the high inflation numbers here in the U.S. and with the data coming out about foreign purchases of U.S. treasuries uh, hitting all-time lows uh, on a relative basis. Uh, like, are we approaching and taking a step back to you see Japan, they're losing control uh, of their yield curve control program, it seems, to to an extent, and they were the first one to embark on these types of policies. Like, is the end game of the just print money and financialize your economy coming uh, in the near to medium term? And is that going to be what forces the West to, to look internally and say, oh, uh, we need to make some changes here? Well, yeah, the other problem we have, though, is it's and I don't want to draw parallels too much in history. <laughs> we have to be careful. Otherwise, we, you know, but the risk is if the West, in inverted commas, collapses and the political system implodes because people lose all trust, I mean, in the political system, and that there has to be this radical reform. Okay, can it radically reform internally? That's highly debatable. The risk is in Western nations, you could get some populist, strong, strong uh, man, woman who comes out and everyone goes, yeah, you're promising us what we want to hear, and they get they become elected. And they're not the solution. And I'm not drawing parallels in history and trying to infer it's going to be like Germany was with the Nazis. But my point is, this happens in history. It won't be the same, but the risk is they'll come out with a ludicrous policy decision. And it'll all sound great for 12 months to two years, but actually it'll cause more and more damage. So there is always the risk that that's something else we have to contend with within, within our political structure. But the question is, who forms? I mean, what is the alternative? Okay, there needs to be an alternative to the Democrats, the Republicans, Conservatives, and Labour in the UK. Who provides it? Who, and who's going to? I mean, as much as I don't like governments, we're going to have to have light touch government. We can't. We can't eliminate all government structure because countries can't function. But if we have very light touch government, who's who's out there in Western nations well, who can be presidents and prime ministers and? Foreign, you know, you know, foreign secretaries or finance ministers, or you know, secretary of the U.S. Treasury or the you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer well, in the U.K. Where are these people? Well, this is, I mean, a major focal point of everything we've been discussing uh, for the last hour and a half, hour and forty-five minutes, and previously stems from this this friction that's created with the way the global monetary order works, particularly via the petrodollar system up to this point. It seems like you're having brick nations begin to turn to each other and try to form alternative monetary systems and sanctioning uh, Russia using SWIFT is, like we said, forcing people to question, like, all right, they can do this to Russia, they can do this to us, like, let's find alternatives. And there's two things particularly that I think here in America that make me very bullish and optimistic that uh, things are going to change in a positive light and it's not going to happen via the federal government with COVID, with lockdowns. What we've seen is an emboldening of individual states asserting their autonomy from the federal government. I think that's a trend that's going to pick up here and only continue to get stronger as we move through this decade. I think states are just going to start ignoring the federal government, which is... Uh -huh. uh, 
something that needs to happen and should continue to happen moving forward. And then again, I know you're not um, completely sold on Bitcoin yet, but again, Bitcoin has distributed peer-to-peer uh, cash system with a very transparent monetary policy where you really can't have any individual country or coalition coalition of countries use their uh, geopolitical military power to influence that monetary system will just naturally force markets towards a more peaceful uh, economic facilitation where you, you don't even have the ability to to get into a dick measuring contest using the monetary system and weaponizing the monetary system. Uh, and you're just forced to abide by the rules of this apolitical distributed system that no one entity can control. So states' rights really just beginning to fade the federal government and saying, hey, you guys are crazy. Anybody within our borders does not have to listen to some of the federal mandates that you're putting out there. And then uh, we're going to uh, begin to uh, facilitate settlement within our economy using this distributed ledger that can't be controlled. Yeah, I mean, look, whether the point you, in a broad sense, yeah, you're correct. I mean, okay, we can agree or disagree on whether it's Bitcoin, but but certainly, look, the one thing the last probably, well, since 2014 to people who've paid attention, but really since since. You know, Russia was sanctioned into oblivion and in inverted commas and it failed. The one thing the Global South's looking at, and you're absolutely right, they're going, well, there are alternatives and there are alternative financial systems. The Chinese and Russians have developed it years ago. It's ready to roll, whether it's not a question of can we implement it, it's timing of implementing. But yeah, there's lots of new initiatives for payment systems in non-dollar terms, etc. But the one thing the global south has perfect opportunity to do. And this revolves around this whole idea the world's dependent on ad infinitum on dollars. They're not, because let's just look at Sri Lanka. We know Sri Lanka's collapsed in bankrupt. Well, Sri Lanka has a, has a very easy decision to make. It can sit there and go, well, there's the old world. There's the IMF, the World Bank and all the creditors, and we can sit there and go, oh, we'll renegotiate uh, you know, the terms of, of settling our debt, and in the process we'll have austerity and we'll bring out off the, whatever assets we've got left to be stolen. Or they can turn around and say to the IMF and the World Bank, do you know what, here's a radical thought, we'll just default, we'll default on everything, we're not paying you a single dollar back. And you can give us a zero credit rating. We don't care because we're joining multipolar world. We're going to join the Chinese and the Russians. Do you know what? We're not going to get ripped off by them. And they're not going to put measures uh, in place of severe austerity. And they're not going to put some puppet government in place to make sure the austerity gets rolled out. We're going to do something radically different. And Sri Lanka has the opportunity to do this. It's rather like, and they've learned from Russia because Russia's gone, do you know what? We don't care if we're not part of Sweden. We don't, we're, not, we're never going to borrow money in Western markets again. We don't care. You know, it doesn't matter to us. And you can exclude us. In fact, we're not going to operate in your financial system. Anymore. We're not going to deal with the IMF or the World Bank. It's just completely irrelevant in the future. We're going to sell our debt to, to nations in the global south, and they'll buy it. The Chinese will buy our debt if we need to, to, to issue debt. So... That's the, the, the mindset. So 
all the global south can quite simply turn its back on the dollar, turn its back on the IMF, the World Bank, and all these institutions, credit agencies. But we're just defaulting on it all. We don't care if we're $100 billion in debt. Or the creditors will just have to lump it, not have to deal with the consequences. Because, and by the way, if we, we have some sort of financial and economic ties with the Chinese and the Russians, and maybe we will have some military cooperation with the Russians just in case you might decide to try and invade our country and overthrow our government, and, or you might try and have a colour revolution or whatever. You know, we, we, we've got some measures in place to circumvent that problem. They can do this. It's not, they don't have to be obligated to settle or renegotiate, refinance debt with the West or whoever it might be walk away from it, say, no, we're not doing this anymore. And, and they're quite legitimately able to do that. They just haven't realised you can do this. You don't, because if you're not going to borrow money in Western markets anymore, the credit agencies can give you a zero rating, they, you know, and say, sorry, you just go, fine. We're not, remember, we're, we're not borrowing money off you. We're, we'll go somewhere else. We'll borrow some, you know, some money off the Chinese. And, you know, the West goes, oh, the Chinese are, Posing all this debt trap as well. Go and talk to the nations concerned because you get a very different perspective. I mean, look at China's just postponed $2 billion of debt owed by the by Pakistan and said, well, we'll postpone it for 12 months. Forget it. Just move the goalposts. And if in 12 months you've got a problem, we'll just shift it again. So there are alternatives. And, you know, th- this is the future. So it's just nations are learning to be you don't have to effectively be subservient to the United States, the Western financial system, the dollar, etc. There are alternatives, and these alternatives, Russia's proved. Okay, Russia's a unique case because of, as we said, its resources, etc. But they've proved you can actually financially benefit enormously not being part of the Western financial system and cutting yourself off in totality is actually highly beneficial. So maybe we as impoverished nations in the global south should follow Russia's Russia's line. And okay, we need Russian energy and cooperation with China and Iran or whoever it is. We need to and we need to make sure we have some safeguards in place. But if we've got access to these resources, <clears throat> we can then begin to grow our economy without being subject to austerity, etc. Then that's the way forward. So let's do it and remains to be seen which major nation, because lots of nations are going to go bust in the global south. I mean, we know this, this is reality. Wichland's going to turn around and go, sorry, <clears throat> we have a new way of doing things and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Now oh, we've seen that El Salvador too has come out and <clears throat> openly, um, openly derided the IMF. Um, and yeah, I mean, the IMF is one of the most parasitic entities on the planet. I can't believe... I mean, Argentina alone, I mean, I was astonished by the fact I looked into it a few months ago. They have an annual inflation rate, an annualized inflation rate going back to something like 1952 of around 200%, which is insane. And and they've gone over that 70-year period, they've gotten 23 loans from the IMF. So you talk about insanity. Uh, mm-hmm. doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And you're seeing the, uh, I believe I saw a video uh, on the streets of Argentina, or a video of uh, 
people on the streets of Argentina cornering the finance minister's van uh, because obviously they have hyperinflation again there and the people are beginning to <laughs> uprise and say, hey, how, how does this keep happening here? We're uh, a relatively um, well-off nation in terms of intellectual capital and landscape and we can't get away from this hyperinflationary crisis. Stop going to the IMF, please. And yeah, no, I, I mean, and we're in the middle of this fourth turning inflection point uh, transition into the digital age, whatever you want to call it. And, and just everything that we're seeing, uh, whether it be Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan, the restructuring of the unipolar world to a multipolar world is just a product of decades and arguably centuries of, um, of stuff that's been building to this multi-decade inflection point that we find ourselves in that probably started uh, a couple decades ago, maybe three or four decades ago. It's just part of this multi-century uh, cycle. And we're at the beginning of the transition from the end of one cycle to the next. And it's just going to be a lot of tumult and volatility uh, socially around the world during this period. And we just so happen to be born in it and get to live yes. through it. Well, yeah, I think uh, the other point worth making, <clears throat> excuse me, with regards to this is you're absolutely right. It is the inflection point. So the challenge is, and the challenge for any nation is not to rest on its laurels. The UK is a great one. Where, you know, I'm not advocating the UK, empire, you know, the empire of the past and all the colonialism and the world reserve currency status. But the point I'm trying to make is, is, it rested on its laurels. It became arrogant, ignorant, and forgetting the very people who made its empire and treated them with disdain, and the empire collapses. If you want to carry on being a strong, vibrant nation, you can't rest on your laurels. You have to keep growing, evolving. So the challenge for the global south is, is can they sustain this for 20, 30, 50, 100 years, 200 years, 500 years? Okay, we're... We're exaggerating for effect. But it's possible that the world, if it does things sensibly and, and actually does things correctly, it can go through a period of enormous, less growth, but enormous growth as human beings, as planet evolving. And it can be sustainable for a long time, provided we all live within our means. We don't want things we can't afford. And I don't need invariably, and we have So I've always said this change to multipolarity, as much as anything, is a reboot of humanity in terms of our values. What do we think is important? What matters? Rather than living in, in this consumption-based economy where, I use this analogy, we buy things we don't need to impress the friends we don't have. That's almost largely the way we've gone. We need to end all this. We need to rethink what matters is it more important that we have human interaction we have friends and people we trust and we spend time with people is that far more beneficial to all of us as humanity rather than sitting there with a bit of plastic whether it's a phone a tablet a laptop and that's our world do we should we move outside that realm and, and engage with real friends i mean like yesterday live right on the coast and we had some friends came and we went for a huge walk along the beach and we were 
philosophizing and talking about the future and everything. And it was wonderful. It was just that's human interaction. We need to get back to to doing the things that really matter and and uh, you know beneficial to us as individuals and collectively. And that's why it is. It's a reboot in terms of humanity, what we value. And the challenge is, can we sustain this in the future? And we can, but you know, but the problem is there's that nagging thing where humans tend to be greedy, they tend to be selfish, they pretend to want to look after their own interests only and not, you know, realize that there's there's a far better way of us all living. And the question is, okay, we could have a halcyon period for 10, 20, 30 years, but then do we slip back into that age old selfish mentality where it's it's dog eat dog and you know, these are challenges so every nation has to keep evolving it has to keep trying to move to the next level improve the livelihood of the people of the nation how the people develop how our economies how we can globally deal with the challenges of the future there's no doubt resources are going to be become more and more finite because we're going to keep consuming so here's an obvious example nuclear fusion always been oh it's 20 years it's in the future it's always been 20 years well we're now starting to say well it's actually not 20 years it could be 15 years we may have commercial fusion reactors and if we pooled our resources and when we had limitless dirt cheap energy the environmentalists couldn't mow and imagine how that would revolutionize our economies how livelihoods these are achievable objects objectives if we collectively pull resources and there are those big fusion reactor you know, projects with 35 40 nations in them but it seems lately we've overcome the technological challenges there are still issues there are still problems but we've surmounted some of the major ones so if we achieve that objective what does that mean it's it's a major game changer if everyone has cheap limitless energy well, I think the the idea of conflict doesn't really work anymore. Well, you're, we're gonna we're not going to be able to sanction anyone and cripple them on energy terms. And if we have huge, affordable, cheap energy, what does that mean for food production? The cost of everything. We can feed ourselves and very cheaply. And if we had a global agricultural policy decision that would work for humanity, we can do this. Because you know, in the Netherlands, they've got an amazing agri-sector. It's incredible given the size of the country, the food, the amount of food they produce, and it works brilliantly. I mean, you just drive anywhere. I was there a few days ago and you just go anywhere, and just everywhere, any bit, there's greenhouses, there's there's food produce being grown. You can go in a housing estate on the edge of it, they're growing food. I mean, this is mm-hmm. these are all achievable objects, objectives, and if we do that, and then and we start to go, well, hang on, we, we do have finite resources. We can't just keep producing wind turbines or, or electric car batteries because in the end, what if we don't have lithium anymore, what happens? So we need to start to be thinking like this is, you know, the 21st century. It's about time we we stop being a bit Neanderthal and wanting to club each other over the head to achieve our own objectives. This is the point of this. Some people say this will never happen. Well, it, it will happen because... Necessity is the mother of invention. So we, we, by necessity, things are going to have to change. But how quickly that happens is the challenge. The other point is, is how do we get people in decision-making positions who, rather than this Dickensian political system we have in the West, I mean, 
you know, with frankly political dinosaurs who should not be in politics anymore. And I'm not just pointing the finger in the US, it's the same in the UK, it's the same all over Europe. We need to have a different mindset. We need people who actually go, do you know what the new policy is? We don't really need to have these lunatic elections that don't actually just drive people apart and, and, and create wedges between families because they hate each other because of their political beliefs. We actually need a political system that says, okay, the West needs a 10-, 20-year plan. Yeah, we can change it, but we have to stick with it and we have to understand that this is for the greater good. So that is an evolution in, in political terms. These are, these are the major challenges we face, and it's going to be extremely tough. It's been that way for to varying degrees since 2008. It's accelerating. The pandemic accelerated it, but the war in Ukraine's accelerating it. There's no doubt we're in that period, but we will get through this. We, it's going to be extremely tough. There's no disputing it, but we have to get through the other side, and then we have to start to think of things differently and have enough people, because the vast majority of, of Western populations will just go with, with the consensus. If there's enough consensus in a very small way that says, well, this is how we're going to do things, and people will just go with it. Does people just go with, with the consensus, even if the consensus is two people making the consensus? They don't generally want to have to make decisions themselves. So, But we need a consensus. We need to understand the challenges and change our perspective of how the world should operate. And it's within our grasp, and I've talked about this before. We, we're at an inflection point in our development as human beings that we need to break the proverbial glass ceiling. So we, we move into a different realm of consciousness, of thought, how we do things. And as much as younger generations are constantly derided for, for their attitude because that's what happens, I do see a lot of positives. Yeah, there's some, I mean, I'm not trying to tell people in younger generations you're wrong, but there are certain things I think that they could do better, but they have a lot of good ideas and those ideas need to be honest. And it's possible we can achieve this. But, you know, for, for me, the age I am, I'm going, well, we need to build a world that will benefit children and grandchildren. Okay, I'm, I mean, and so, I mean, I could live for another 40, 50 years, but you know, what, how much tangible benefit? Well, yeah, it doesn't matter. The point is we need to start to look, say, well, this is more about future generations as much as anything, and adopting the philosophy that... We want to build a better world, and we can do this, and it is achievable. And I think politically, these dinosaurs in are going to, whether they like it or not, in the next five, ten years, will cease to be involved in politics. And by virtue of their age, or by virtue of the fact that the West goes enough's enough, we're not putting up with this. We want a different philosophy, a different way of doing things, and that, by an evolutionary sense, will happen. And then. We might start to get people in, in the political system who actually go, no, we're having a different thought process. Now, again, this is hard work. It's not easy. It might be easy for us to discuss this. And from my perspective, it's it's child's play. It's really simple. There's nothing complicated. But I know people's mindsets and how intransigent they are and how they, they're not, they don't like change and they, they don't like to think that what they believe in is wrong, but we, we have to move on. We, we're at that point where it's obvious. The West, it's over. The West has failed economically, financially, societally. We've failed in education. We've failed 
in geopolitics, we just we, we're at the end of the road, and we we have to mm-hmm. do something differently, and we have to accept. And it doesn't matter we've made really big mistakes. We have to hold up our hand and go. There's another way of doing things, and this is achievable. And anyone who says and this is impossible and it can't happen, well, of course it can happen. If there's enough people who say we want this to happen, it will happen. And you know, as much as like you're right, I'm not the biggest fan of Bitcoin. What I will say is I applaud the people, not the people who are just trying to milk it to make money in fiat terms. I don't I don't but I because they're just just be mercenary. But I applaud people like yourself who see it as something that's a, an alternative, something that will give people confidence, something that's outside mainstream thinking. That I applaud wholeheartedly because that's where we need to get. And, and, the, and there are a lot of people who believe that with Bitcoin, and that's fine. I, and that I really do, because well, that gives me confidence there are increasing numbers of people who think there can be alternatives. We can do things differently. And it's not just Bitcoin, it's everything. And if we keep believing in that and more and more people grasp this reality in the end that the they will it's the straw that breaks the camel's back or it's the it's the domino that flips the entire set of dominoes and we're far closer to that perhaps than we realize it's a capitulation of the west people go it's decades away it's been happening for decades it's it's like you know the berlin wall fell not because someone made a decision one day and they took it down. This process has been going on for a long time. It's like we only see the consequences. We don't see often the, the, the actions that led to that decision. And the West, I've made the point, the United States has effectively, for me, has effectively been in this slow-motion collapse since the Great Depression. I think the United States' halcyon days were in the 1800s, the late 18, early 19, when it, you know, and then it decided to embark on a completely different policy, and it was made countless very bad decisions since then. And you know, throughout history, I mean, look at the Vietnam War. What a stupid decision that was. And then, you know, turning to the petrodollar, very bad decision. And so, throughout history, you know, they've been in decline, and people go, "That's ridiculous." But that's how long empires take. I mean, you made the point about the Roman Empire. Think about how long the Roman Empire was in collapse mode. It wasn't a matter of a few years. It was decades and beyond. That's how it works with empires. They, they're often already in decline when people think they're in ascendancy. And, you know, the U.S., for me, now would have been the time for the U.S. to, to not be the dominant hegemonic power, but one of the big nations leading the multipolar world. The U.S. had waited longer and hadn't been insatiable desire to control everything and go, well, we'll kill the British Empire and and by the end of World War II, the whole world's collapsed and we're, we're okay, we're fine. Oh, now we're going to have the IMF, NATO, the World Bank. And by the way, you're all going to enjoy adopting the usage of the dollar. It, you know, they already, by that, it was a stupid decision. They should never have made it. If they'd gone, done the things that made America great and, and rather than rushing headfirst into trying controlling everything, but made the right decisions in the last century. They could have now been easily, I mean, you think if they'd invested trillions of dollars in the US economy, the US could have been economically, financially, technologically the greatest nation on the planet. It could have outstripped the rest of the world. It could have been the rest of the world could have looked at the US and gone, 
you are you you you've produced the the model by which we want to follow and you want to work with us and cooperate with that's where the u.s should have been now instead it isn't and it remains to be seen how long the u.s takes to be a great nation amongst equals and this could be a very long process or a quicker process depending on but for me that that's the the real crying shame and i want Nothing would please me more in my lifetime to see the United States respected as a great nation amongst equals because the world will benefit hugely from that. And the United States will benefit hugely from that cooperation with the rest of the world because I don't doubt there's a backbone to the US that can really make America, to use that awful phrase, America great again, but but in the sense of a global perspective. But, you know, it's true. It can be a great nation amongst equals. And, and I think there is a backbone in America who will roll up their sleeves and will gladly be part of that. And we have to hope that that element in the U.S. prevails in the next, in the coming years. And we're talking now, not you can wait 20 years. It doesn't matter. It matters now. Hopefully that's what will happen. Yeah. I think this is a good tenor to end this on this conversation. It's only our second conversation, but uh i really like the uh the, the way these episodes go you have a an incredible way of being able to distill all this uh in in monologue fashion that uh it really gets in depth and i agree i think we we need to get away from this high velocity trash economy and begin stop pointing guns at each other and thinking how we can game each other and, and just begin to think hey how can we live within our means and uh, do great things together instead of uh, just trying to kill each other and dominate each other? Uh, yeah. Give peace a chance. <laughs> well, as, as one beetle once said. <laughs> yeah. Um, Paul, I know uh, it's getting late. We're getting into the evening where you are. I want you to be able to go enjoy your Monday night with your family. So thank you again for doing this. Um, oh, where can people pleasure. find I really enjoy it. It's great because often we I do things and it's all economic, financial, but I think we take the conversation in a different direction. And and it, and it's a direction these we need to, not just you and I, but generally we need, people need to have these conversations more about, yeah, we talk about that, but what underpins all this is us as people and how we interact with each other, not rocket science and, sooner we understand it's not rocket science and it's quite simple then we can make the impossible a reality very simple mm -hmm. yeah we can do it just take some effort rolling up the sleeves saying no and that's that's another thing we've been saying on this show the last few months it's like small actions you can take i mean in terms of bitcoin accepting bitcoin but terms of food supply going out shaking your your farmer's hand getting to know them developing a relationship figuring out how you can help them not be so dependent on this this incredible incredibly oppressive system that has been thrust on the world and then just having conversations like this to, to get these ideas out to more people like i did mention that we live in 2022 and we have these communication technologies that that previous generations of humans have can never even dream of and now it's here, and I do think it's having a good impact. These these conversation, our first conversation, uh, did really you know, a lot. Of, it was really well received. We got a lot of comments, a lot of emails, 
got a lot of downloads and uh, people are very receptive to this type of no bullshit. Let's be objective and just to explain the reality of things instead of trying to pretend uh, that reality is, is something else. And so I think we're going to make an impact. Um, we just got to keep, keep chugging along one day at a time. Yeah, exactly. And I'm happy to keep doing it. I've, and nothing will ever diminish my, my appetite to keep doing things and, and hoping to be a very, 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 very small cog in a gigantic wheel of, countless other people and people who don't engage in these things who but who think this way and and you know one day it will be it will happen it's just hopefully it happens a lot sooner because then all humanity benefits a lot quicker and we may actually be you never know we might be really surprised it might just be if far sooner than we think a kind of tipping point when that does that attitude does change and prevails and you never know, given what might happen in the autumn and winter of this year, that we might be literally at that point far soon. I mean, it could be a matter of months. It might not be, and we're not, it's not about, nothing's time-driven, it's always event-driven, but this winter will compose enormous challenges for the West, and they're going to have to decide what's more important. And if you've got a lot of angry people, hungry and cold, that might finally refocus their minds as to what matters and what doesn't matter. Because even if they're political beasts, which they are, they don't want uh, uh, 10,000 people trying to storm their house and smash it up because they're furious with uh, pol the local politicians or their government for, for their in ineptitude and inaction in dealing with what fundamentally would be a crisis in the like of which we've not seen in, well, since even worse possibly than, than like the Great Depression all those scenes we've seen of people queuing up at soup kitchens. I mean, I'm not trying to dramatise things, but that's the risk we're at, and and it's a very real risk. So maybe, sadly, it will that will be the catalyst that begins to change things. And I think once things start to change, this whole edifice of the illusion will just crack very rapidly. And, yes. and then there's, there's, there's a whole bit of instability until common sense, well, people sit down and go, okay, and we're not just sound biting as politicians and you know we get politicians who go this is a vocation this is this i'm doing this because i love people i care for my nation in a truly nationalist way not bullshit nationalist and and actually want to do the right things and people see this and you know and we get back to the way it used to be where you know people did have neighbors real neighbors and you had that community feeling we build a community feel out and it actually becomes a reality once again because i remember it in my lifetime i can remember okay maybe it's just where i grew up but i remember that and i and i would love to see that come back and these are just small important steps of humans interacting with each other and not with with a bit of plastic or you know in some virtual reality let's engage in the real world with each other because that's the starting point that's how people will start to, to to evolve in ways I think that's far more beneficial to us rather than the isolationist kind of behaviour where many people just like to live in virtual reality and not really interact with humans. This is very, very bad. It's bad for us on a phys physiological level and a psychological level. This is just a statement of fact. It's not 
me you know trying to justify anything it's just not healthy for humans to interact in virtual reality yeah i mean all the mental health data coming i mean coming out and people i mean i'm guilty of it sometimes too uh, it's very addicting it's dopamine those cheap dopamine hits um do drive you back but no nah, i mean that's like looking around here like i'm gonna end this conversation and go to the beach with my wife like my, my kids and a few of our friends that are down and it's um it's been great being a vacation down on this island. I've got my extended family and we've got an extended network of friends groups that come down here too. And it's, uh, I grew up with my cousins and that extended friend group and their kids. And now just seeing it replicate with my children, my cousin's children. Um, it's, it's makes, uh, makes me very happy. And it gives me hope that these types yeah. of yeah, yeah. You've got a microcosm of something that's that's wonderful, and it can be extrapolated across entire communities and, and nations and the world. And it's an aspiration we should all strive for. Stay yeah. under the obvious. Yes, we should. Well, Paul, thank you again for your time. Um, oh, it's a pleasure, as ever. Yeah, we'll um, we'll do this again at some point. Maybe maybe we'll make this like a a once every six months thing. Uh, we record in February. It's August now. Um, so maybe we'll catch up next February. Yeah, we will do. Or maybe sooner, depending on what happens. But anyway, yes, of course. We'll certainly do it again. And, you know, it's a pleasure for me as well. And thank you. Awesome. Well, enjoy the rest of your night. That's all we got and today. Free love. Take care.